Well, good morning, Chapel family. I encourage you to take your Bibles, if you would, open to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 119. We're in a short message series on the longest chapter in the Bible, which is Psalm 119. Two weeks ago, we saw that this psalm is a celebration of God's Word, a celebration of the Scriptures. Almost every verse of this psalm, all but just a handful, mention God's Word in one way or another. God has spoken. As we saw, we should then listen because God speaks through His Word. Last week we saw how our songwriter loves God's Word and he revels in it. He reads it. He memorizes it. He ponders it. Thinks about it. He sings it. He tries to live it out. And therefore, as one who does so, the rest of this psalm is all about how this songwriter has a wonderful, blessed life. He got a promotion in his job, a big bonus at work. His kids are on the honor roll. They smile when they do their chores. His grass is green. He doesn't have weeds in his lawn anymore. He has no worries, no enemies, no pressures, no stress, no problems, no sickness. Well, at least that would be the narrative according to some who teach in Christianity today. It's the message of some in Christendom that if someone places their faith in God and they believe his word, and they build their lives upon His Word like this songwriter does, then their life should be one that prospers financially. They live healthy and they live happy in the victorious Christian life and sail off into the sunset forevermore. Amen. Now, as much as we would like that to be the case, when we look carefully at this psalm, we discover something different in our songwriter's experience. Matter of fact, as we notice, the psalm is broken into 22 sections, paragraphs, strophes, whatever we want to call them, stanzas, each of these built around one letter of the Hebrew alphabet. When you go through and look carefully at this psalm, you will notice that of these 22 stanzas, almost every one, in some place or another, in each stanza, most of them talk about some oppression, opposition, struggle, suffering, some affliction that the songwriter is enduring. In other words, his, not, his life is not one of just nothing but bliss and peace. How bad has his situation gotten? Verse 81, you'll see this. He says, My soul faints with longing for your salvation. Lord, I don't know if I can hold on any longer. I'm passing out here, God. Verse 82, he says, My eyes fail looking for your promise. I say, When will you comfort me? God, I'm sitting here waiting. You say you're going to take care of me. My eyes are giving out. I can't keep looking any longer. God, when, when is it going to happen? 
keep going just to the next verse, verse 83, he says, Though I am like a wineskin in the smoke. Wineskins, you see, they didn't have bottles or, or so much. They kept it in, in skins, animal skins. And he says it's like an animal skin bottle that's hanging up in the tent where there's you have the fire going and so there's it's smoky in the tent. And, and over time, the smoke of the tent affects the wineskin. The wineskin becomes... Blackened, the wineskin starts to become brittle. It starts to become hard. It starts cracking up. He said, God, that's what I feel like. I'm getting brittle, starting to crack up, shriveled up from just this constant exposure to affliction in my life. You get the picture? Verse 87, he says, they almost wiped me out from the earth. They almost killed me. And maybe next time they will if you don't rescue me soon. See, the reality is, of course, that not only for this songwriter, but we look through the Bible and we find that for all of us, the Bible never promises that those who trust in God will live a stress-free, problem-free life. Our personal experience bears that out, doesn't it? The reality is that for us as believers in Jesus Christ, we, just like everybody else in this world, we can experience natural disaster. The floods that are devastating Louisiana affect unbelievers and believers alike. Have they not? Many of those who are suffering there are brothers and sisters in Christ. If you go to California and the fires there that are devastating homes and, and farms and businesses there, they are affecting unbelievers just like they are affecting believers or they are affecting believers just like unbelievers. You go, this is the same with famines. It's the same with, uh, with earthquakes. It's the same with tornadoes and hurricanes. Believers, God followers are not exempt from natural disasters. In the same way, believers are not exempt. We experience disease and sickness just like unbelievers. So many in this room have been or are being affected by cancer, by heart issues, by colds and sore throats and flus and allergies, whether it's the seasonal kind or, or the very debilitating kind. Believers like unbelievers suffer from the wrong, the sinful, and even just the poor choices of other people. So we suffer from theft, from thieves. We suffer those who are anger and do violence. When evil people gun people down or blow people up, believers are not immune from such things. Believers, like unbelievers, suffer from our own sinful choices and our own poor choices. See, Scripture makes it clear that even though you trust in God, 
Even though we are believers in Jesus Christ, we are not exempt from sufferings. And it goes on to even point out this. Not only are we not exempt from these things, but it makes a point that as those who are Christ followers, precisely because we are Christ followers, we will be subject to additional sufferings. In Psalms, it says this, Psalms 34, you know this verse, Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. We like the last part, the Lord delivers them, but the point is you go through them. You enter into them and you are in affliction and suffering. And he says, many are the afflictions of the righteous. Jesus said, the world will hate you. Because it hated me first. The Apostle Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. God's Word says that as believers in Jesus Christ, not only are we not exempt from suffering, but we will even experience more than the rest of the world. But what it does say is that God provides to you and to me great comfort in our suffering. Not exemption from it, but comfort in. In the words of our songwriter here in Psalm 119, he said in verse 92, If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. The Word of God kept this man from literally dying in his suffering. For that very reason, I think it behooves us to say why. Because some of you this morning are here in the midst of suffering. Some of you are in the thick of the affliction. Others of you just don't know it, but it's coming tomorrow or next week or next month or in the next decade. But sooner or later, every one of us will be in a time of suffering, affliction, distress. And we ought to know, what is it in the Word of God that this songwriter has learned that has sustained him in time of trouble? Very quickly this morning, three things I want us to note We're going to pick it up in verse 49 of Psalm 119. Just follow as I read a few verses. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. This is my comfort in my affliction that your promise gives me life. The insolent utterly deride me, but I do not turn away from your law. When I think of your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. Hot indignation seizes me. Because of the wicked who forsake your law, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. I remember your name in the night, O Lord, and keep your law. This blessing has fallen to me that I have kept your precepts. Three things to help us this morning that this songwriter learned if we're going to find comfort if we're going to not perish in our affliction. First thing is this. 
Remember God's Word. Verse 49, he said, Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. Verse 52, when I think, literally translated, when I remember your rules from of old, I take comfort, O Lord. How does remembering God's Word give us comfort and hope? Verse 50, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. When we remember God's Word, we remember that God's Word is full of promises. The New American Standard translates this verse, Your Word has revived me. It has rejuvenated me. How does remembering God's Word give us comfort and hope? Verse 50, it says, This is my comfort in my affliction, that your promise gives me life. When we remember God's Word, we remember that God's Word is full of promises. The New American Standard translates this verse, Your Word has revived me. It has rejuvenated me. See, because part of the question is, if God has made promises, that's good, but as I look around me, I don't see the results of those promises. As I look around me, what I see is difficulty. What I see is affliction. And the question is, is God good for the promises He makes? The answer is, we look to God's nature. And there in 55, verse 55, where He says, I remember your name in the night. It's in the night time, which is often as it's quiet as we're maybe trying to sleep, the cares, the worries, the fears, the frustrations, all of that stuff starts to set in. The, the, not only is it the physical darkness, but the darkness, the gloom of the worry and the situation starts to come upon us and we wonder, is it, is it really worth it? Will God really come through? And He says, I think about your name. If you remember in the Old Testament, we find that, that throughout the Old Testament, God reveals and, and has given to us many different names for God. And each of those names tell us something different about God's nature, about God's character, about who God is. God is provider. God is creator. He is the almighty God. He is the faithful Lord. He is... and. and we have the names of God. Many of you are acquainted with the personal revealed name that God gave to His people. The personal name that He called Himself. He called Himself Yahweh or Jehovah. Often that's translated I Am, but the implications of it are so much bigger. It's not just talking that God exists, but it talks about God in His eternal existence. God always has been. God always will be. He is outside of time. He is outside of all the limitations that we think of. It speaks not only to His eternality, but to His eternal power. It speaks to Him as the Creator. It speaks to Him as the One who is the Sovereign Lord who can and will do whatever He purposes. It speaks to His sovereign power as it works within the realm of human existence. And you see, as the songwriter begins to think on the name, which is the compilation, of, uh, the combination of all the names of God, he begins to, he thinks of who God is, the picture of the God that has spoken in the Scriptures. 
He realizes that because the God who has spoken is the eternal Creator, Sovereign, Almighty God, everything that He has said is done. Whether I see it or not, it's done because He has spoken. And so he finds comfort in the Word of God because it's filled with promises of God which are backed by the nature and the character of God. And he says, Lord, it gives me life. Revives me. So he remembers God's Word. And it brings us to our second point because God will do everything that He has promised. Verse 54 He says, your statutes have been my songs in the house of my sojourning. He remembers, and we need to remember in our time of trouble, we need to remember our destiny. And he says here, he speaks of the house of his sojourning. He says it again earlier in the psalm, back in verse 19. He says, I am a sojourner on earth. His point is that This isn't our home. Where we are living now, in this world we are living now, is not our destiny. It's where we are, but it's not where we are going to be forever. Matter of fact, he's saying, I'm just passing through for a little while, like the old song, the really old song, all of us old folks know it, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through, my treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue, the angels beckon me from heaven's open door, and I just can't feel at home in this world anymore, oh Lord, you know, I have, okay. (laughs) See, the point is, he's saying, man, I'm just here for a little while, I'm on my way to my real home and to what really matters. As we remember our destiny, we have a different perspective. Our songwriter understood what the Apostle Peter would later write, where he says, 1 Peter chapter 2, we are aliens and strangers here. Chapter 1 and chapter 2, 1 Peter. Hebrews chapter 11 instructs us that God followers have always understood that our ultimate joy, our ultimate home, our ultimate rewards don't come here. Hebrews chapter 11 is that great hall of fame of faith, but he says of the ancient one, of our patriarchs, of the fathers of the faith, he says they were looking for a city, a country whose builder and maker was was God. They understood this world is not our ultimate home. The Bible never minimizes our pain and suffering. It doesn't say it's not real. It doesn't say it's no big deal. But what the Bible, what the Scripture does, the Word of God gives you and me a different perspective, a long-term view as we look at our real aim and our real home. And so the Apostle Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4. He said, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that outweighs them all. The reality is some of you suffer greatly. Some of you have suffered greatly. Some of you are and some of you will suffer greatly. But I think if we got into, you know, if the Apostle Paul and sat down, came in and sat down in the pew, I don't think any one of us would want to start comparing suffering with the Apostle Paul. He had quite a list. Numerous beatings, numerous floggings with the 39 lashes, the 40 minus 1 that would kill you. 
Numerous stonings, numerous beatings with canes or rods that would kill you. He'd been shipwrecked. He'd been rejected. He'd been imprisoned. He'd been, you know, the list, you remember the list. Stoned. Yeah, that's not a little thing. Left for dead. And he says, light and momentary afflictions. Yeah. I'd rather not have any of those light and momentary afflictions. But you see, he says, it's not that they're really that small, it's they're that small when you compare them, see, it's the rest of the verse, to the eternal glory, then it outweighs them all. Paul wrote to the Romans and he said there, he said, said, I consider that our present sufferings are not worthy, worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. See, what's coming is so much greater that we so we can endure what we have now because we know what's coming. Back in the dark era of our nation's history of slavery, when you look at many of the slaves, what you are amazed at is how so many of them endured the indignities and the cruelties and the hardships and the afflictions of slavery with hope and with grace and with joy. And you wonder, how did they do that? It's precisely because many of them became believers in Jesus Christ. And they took the Word of God and they turned it like our songwriter did here into the songs of their nights. The songs of their desperation. And then, and you read the words, and you hear in the words of the spirituals they sang, you hear not only of their heartbreak, but of their hope. Because they looked for the joy that was to come in heaven. They sang of the joys in heaven, swing low, sweet chariot. Coming for to carry me home. Deliver me out of this. They knew that there was a day coming when the wrong would be made right. There was a day coming when there would be joy eternally. There was a day coming when we would be delivered from this suffering into a home that will be forever and ever and ever. And so, brothers and sisters, no matter what affliction you may be enduring today, no matter what you may be going through today, or no matter what you may enter into tomorrow, how we need to cling to this promise, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 9. Let it sink in as I read it. No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. That is not an empty promise. That is a reality from the words, from the mouth of the Almighty Creator, Sovereign God. You have no clue what I've set aside for you in heaven. I know it's hard. But there is unimaginable joy coming. So he remembers... (laughs) His destiny, not only that 
this isn't our home. And not only that our real home is in heaven, our real aim is there, but there's one more thing we have to see. And that's verse 57. Look at this. The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep your words. Portion is, we don't see it in the English, but portion is real estate language. It literally is, if you translated it literally, it would say, for my boundary lines are in heaven. And what, what it is, it's saying that the property lines are there. And you see, it's in the mindset of the, the psalmist and the Israelites. Your inheritance was your property. It's what God gave us the land. The land was divided among the tribes. The tribes divided among the families. And the family passes the inheritance from one family to the next. It's our inheritance from God is our property. And the boundary lines, the property, this is what God has given me. And what he says is you and I have an inheritance from God. Just as Israel as God's people had an inheritance from God, you and I have an inheritance from God. Our inheritance from God is not the house you live in now or the house you wish you lived in. Your inheritance from God is not the cars and the boats and the bank accounts and all the other stuff we have. Those are wonderful things, but those aren't God's inheritance for you. We just said, our aim is heaven, our home is heaven, our inheritance is heaven. But did you notice what he said? He didn't say, heaven is my inheritance, my portion. What did he say? The Lord. See, our real inheritance isn't stuff in this life. It's not even stuff in heaven. Our real inheritance in heaven is Intimate, face-to-face, real relationship with the sovereign Creator, God of the universe, our Savior, Jesus Christ. See, our real inheritance isn't stuff in this life. It's not even stuff in heaven. Our real inheritance in heaven is an intimate, face-to-face, Real relationship with the sovereign Creator, God of the universe, our Savior, Jesus Christ. The ultimate reason that heaven is going to be so great is not just because you're going to have a mansion, which the Bible says you will. It's not just because you're going to walk on streets of gold, which you will. It's not just because there's crowns and eternal rewards, which there are. But the real reason heaven is going to be so great is because Jesus is there. And you're going to talk to Him. You're going to have a relationship with Him. And it ought to excite us. It excited the Apostle Paul so very much that he wrote this. He said, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I've suffered the loss of all things. And I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. The greatest thing that you and I will ever enjoy is relationship with God. We, we get just a glimpse of that in a relationship with somebody we love here on earth. That's why marriage is a picture of our relationship with God. Because it's designed to say, what, 
that what we're going to have with God is this infinite relationship. But you notice the Apostle Paul doesn't say it just happens in heaven. I'm going to get it someday. He says, I count it the things now as rubbish for the sake of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord here. Which is why he goes on a couple verses later and says, I want to know Christ. The point is, now. The power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His suffering. His greatest ambition right now is to get to know Jesus better and better as much as He can. And Paul goes on in that very verse, he's saying, the fellowship of His sufferings. He doesn't go say to, for us ever to go looking for sufferings, but the point that Paul is making in the Scripture says is when sufferings come, sufferings actually help us to get to know God better and to love Him more. Which brings me really to the next and the last point of our remembers, the three things that this psalmist discovers that helps him endure and even thrive in suffering. It's remembering God's purpose. Verse 75 very quickly, makes an astounding comment. Verse 75 in Psalm 119. Look at this. I know, O Lord, that Your rules are righteous and that in faithfulness You have afflicted me. Let that last phrase sink in for just a second. In faithfulness You have afflicted me. This is a big thing to lay on you right now, but... If you've never understood this before, you need to know this. Our trials come from God. Wait a minute. You're saying, Pastor, that my afflictions, my suffering, the devastating, awful things that come into my life are from God? Uh And that's good news? Yep. (laughs) How? Glad you asked. See, because if they're from God, what it means is they're not random. What it means is that they are not accidents. Random freaks of nature, happenstance, or that somehow they just slipped past God. You know, one day God was busy. He was busy thinking about Jeff over there and paying attention to Jeff. And and while he was doing that, he forgot about you. And so while he forgot about you, Satan goes, "Ah Look! (laughs) Boom! Lightning bolt! Boom! Zaps you! Your world falls apart. You know, every big disaster comes upon you. And Satan going, Woohoo! And God says, you know, you're going sitting there going, What happened? And God says, Well, I'm sorry. I just got a little preoccupied. Oops. Please no, the Bible doesn't say that. Because the Bible says God is sovereign. We have said that already. What that means is there is not one molecule in this universe that moves outside of what God has ordained and decreed and allowed. We see it in the life of Job. Job chapters 1 and 2. Job is there and from Job's perspective, he's walking along one day and everything's wonderful and all of a sudden everything falls apart. He loses his kids. He loses his house. He loses his wealth. He loses pretty much everything. He loses his health and it's just going, what happened? What we don't see is a scene in heaven where Satan wants to afflict Job and God says, I'll allow this. I'll allow this. 
and no more. Satan cannot do one thing to Job that God did not allow. And see, the trouble and the affliction may come into your life and into my life by the hand of Satan, or it may come into our life by the hand of a terrorist or an evil person or a thief, or it may come into our life through a natural disaster, through a tornado or a flood, but none of it comes into our life without it passing through the hands of a gracious and sovereign God who says, all right. And the reason that is important is because what it means is that trials come from God, but then they never come accidentally. They come with a purpose. And our trials are for our good. The psalmist says it here. Look in verse 65. He says, You have dealt well with Your servant, O Lord, according to Your Word. The problems are still there because they still keep popping up from the rest, through the rest of the psalm. But he says, God, you're doing well with me. You're doing with me according to your word. You go down to, down to verse 68 where he says, you are good and you do good. The afflictions are there, but God is good in them. The psalmist is saying, Lord, I wouldn't have chosen these things. I don't really particularly like these things. I'm not enjoying it. I'd love to change it. But when I look at my situation, my afflictions, my struggles, my problems, and I look at You, and I say, Lord, You are good. What You're doing is good. You do all things well, and You're doing good to me and for me. It's why James writes, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter trials of many kinds, because God is doing good in your life. It's why Romans 8.28 says we know that God works all things together for the good for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. God does good in our trials. He told the people in Israel this, Jeremiah chapter 22 and verse 21. He says, I spoke to you in your prosperity and you would not listen. Most of us, when we think about that, we realize, oh, you know, that could be said about me. When, when life is good, when everything is going, you know, when the, when the kids are smiling and obeying and, and they're on the honor roll and the, and the income is good and the bills are low and, the, you know, everything's going good, we're just cruising along and we don't listen to God because we're just too busy. We're too self-absorbed. We're too busy saying, you know, God, I got it. I got it. We're all good. God says, I spoke to you, but you wouldn't listen. Whereas Romans 1 where it says, do you not know that the kindness of the Lord is designed to lead to repentance? But we often don't listen then. And so God often speaks through the pain, through the suffering. C.S. Lewis said it this way. He said, God whispers in our pleasure, but He shouts in our pain. Personally, I don't think God's volume ever changes. I just think it's we can't hear <laughs> when everything's going good because we got the volume on our stereos up too loud. Somehow it's in that time of pain that it seems like God is shouting, like Emily was sharing about that young lady in France who has never been wanting to listen, but because things are falling apart in her world, suddenly she's open to what does God have to say? 
And so the songwriter says this, verse 67, he says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray. That word astray means I went my own way, did my own thing. But now I keep your word. What made the difference between doing what I wanted and listening to what God said? Affliction, trouble. You go down, so verse 71, he says, It was good for me that I was afflicted so that I might learn your statutes. The psalmist says, I get it. My suffering was good because I've learned now to listen. My suffering was good because now I want to do what you say rather than what I say. And so our songwriter all through this psalm prays words that we noticed last week and the week before. He says, teach me. Teach me. You are good and you do good, God. Therefore, teach me your word. Teach me your statutes. But so often, our prayer is like this. Lord, change my circumstances. Right? Too often, what we, or most of the time, what we say is, God, fix this problem! I hate this problem! God, <laughs> give me more income. My bills are here. My income's here. Give me a job. Give me a better job. Lord, fix them. Change, change them over there because they really need it. And they're bothering me. <laughs> and what the psalmist is saying, what the Lord wants to do in our difficulties is He wants to change us. And so, while it's not wrong to pray, Lord, change my circumstances. Matter of fact, the psalmist does pray, Lord, rescue me, help me, save me, change my circumstances. He also prays, Lord, teach me, change me. Father, that's where we are this morning. We are folks who need to change. We tend to be in love with all the wrong stuff. We tend to go our own way. And your desire, rather than our happiness, is our holiness. You want us to be made right. You want us to be made more like you, to be changed, to be more like you. And that's what we really need. We'll never really be happy till we're holy. We'll be happier the more holy we become. Lord, change us. Lord, we also ask that You would work then through our struggles and our trials and our circumstances and draw us closer to You. That we might love You more. That we might know and understand more Your great love for us. So Lord, use our difficulties for good to change us, to draw us near to You. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.